Welcome to Ed Influencers, a podcast from ISTE, the International Society for Technology and Education. I'm Joseph Sow, ISTE's Chief Learning Officer, and I'm excited to bring you interviews with members of the EdTech community who are not just innovating in education, but who are influencing nonprofits, education policy, and business, and are shaping how students learn. Today, I'm talking with ISTE CEO Richard Collada. Richard's known for his passion for expanding innovative practices in teaching and learning fueled by technology. He's worked at both the state and the federal levels as a key advisor to leaders in education, business, and government. And he was previously the chief innovation officer for the state of Rhode Island, where his team established the state's vision for personalized learning and launched a program to make Rhode Island the first state to offer computer science in every K-12 school. Before that, he was the director of the U.S. Department of Education's Office of Educational Technology. He also happens to work in the office next to me, right here at ISTE. Welcome, Richard. Thanks. Glad to be here. I'd like to first start asking you a little bit about your early years. You've been in EdTech a long time, but where did you start this journey? I think people want to hear some answer about how I was inspired to go into education. And there were certainly some inspiring moments. The real answer uh, was I remember sitting in a algebra math class when I was in high school. And I remember having a horrible experience, wishing I could throw myself in front of oncoming traffic. And I remember one time just saying out loud, it has to be better than this. Right. And I think the teacher was like, what are you talking about? And in my mind, that was the moment where I decided like this experience that I was having was not the type of education that, that I thought I should have or that I wanted other people to have. And so from then on, I just thought I'm going to try to do something about that. That led me to teaching Spanish, uh, led me to doing some teacher prep work, and then eventually doing some work in education policy. Doing better is great, but somewhere along the way, you decide that technology was going to be a part of that. Yeah. Is there is there a, t- a time or a moment? Yeah. So I was a uh, high school Spanish teacher. I was doing my student teaching and was teaching a class about um, the dirty wars in Argentina. Um, this was a horrible time in Argentinian history where a bunch of people had been captured in the middle of the night and taken away because of awful political things that were happening. And we were teaching it. It was just dry and boring and they were falling asleep. I was falling asleep. So I went home that night and on the, the web, I looked up and they had just released all of the pictures of the people in those sort of like concentration camps. And so we took those pictures and then I set them to music. I just threw them in a little app and set it to music to um, Sting's They Dance Alone, which was a song that was written about the dirty wars in Argentina. And I came in the next day and I showed that and I showed the faces of these people and we talked about what they had been through and how horrible this was and we listened to that music. And it completely changed the way they were engaging with this subject. I had the football player in the back of the room who had like tears in his eyes. Uh, We were engaged, we were involved, the class ended and we couldn't believe that it had already been 45 minutes. And I think in that moment, I realized that there was real power there. And that was even, that was the basic level of using technology, right? That wasn't even any of the, anywhere near the, the types of engagement that we talk about now. But just that ability to take something that seems so irrelevant and, and boring when written on, in words and turn it into something that immediately felt, uh, meaningful to those kids' lives. In that moment, I said, there's, there's something here and, and we should be taking way more advantage of this than, than we are. Was there something about the way you did it or like, how, how do you, how do you make sure that when you use technology, you're bridging those distances instead of creating distance? So, I, you know, at the time, I think I just sort of got lucky, right? It was like, oh, I tried this cool thing and, and, and it worked, right? And I think I had it, I knew innately that there was something I was trying to get at, which was to bring these students into to sort of engage them in this topic. 
I think what I learned after as I as I dug more into this was, uh, you know, technology is an accelerator. It accelerates good teaching practice. It also accelerates bad teaching practice. And so we have to be very careful what we apply it to. Um, in that case, I experienced what it's like when you, ex- you know, accelerate something that was good, which was telling a story in a, in a deeper, better, meaningful way. And, and then it led to a conversation, right? But so I think our uh, responsibility that we all have, anybody who is out certainly promoting or, uh, you know, sharing the potential value of technology in education has to also be cautious about sharing the potential uh, disadvantages and tell the other side of the story, which is if you use it in ways that are not enhancing effective teaching practice, you've actually accelerated bad learning experiences. Were there any mentors along the way that really made a difference for you? Either opened your eyes to something or helped you see what was possible? I've been blessed to work for some really amazing people uh, who who I consider mentors. I had a chance to be at the U.S. Department of Education when there were leaders like Jim Shelton, Arnie Duncan, who were really thinking very differently about how to use government as a way to bring innovation into education. That was really powerful for me. I uh, have had a chance over the years to work very closely with uh, Elliot Maisie, who thinks very deeply. He's, he'd sort of call himself a learning futurist, right? Thinking about how not only new technology, but also new approaches can be really disruptive in the space. And and through him, I've learned to think about, to watch for tools that will, that could really potentially make a big difference and then try to take advantage of those. So if you're a teacher and you don't unfortunately have access to Arnie Duncan and those sorts of folks, you know, how do you get that kind of support? How do you, how do you create a support network from scratch? Yeah, I think there, fortunately, there are some really great opportunities for teachers now to be engaged in uh, connecting and collaborating with networks using technology that didn't exist when I was first teaching. I'll tell you one of the things that was shocking for me when I first got into the classroom uh, for the short time that I was teaching was how lonely it felt. I had come through a program that we were in a cohort and we did student teaching sort of together and, you know, walking into the classroom and all of a sudden I was incredibly alone. I didn't talk to any other adults the whole day. Uh, and then we just left and got in our car and did it again the next day. And that was really surprising to me. Now I would be able to very quickly join networks here at ISTE. We have a thing that we call our professional learning networks. These are online communities that teachers can be part of and they can ask questions. They can say, here's where I need help. They can share things that they found that work. And so it, it has made it a much more collaborative experience. I, I hope as we continue to provide ways for teachers to engage with other teachers, whether or not they're in their same physical space, I actually hope that will improve the number of teachers who choose to stay in the field. I'm really surprised at how much social media, and, and I probably shouldn't be, but how much social media seems to be part of a teacher's professional learning network. And I think a lot of people would say, I can't believe you can do professional learning on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, maybe it, I found myself in Twitter chats where I've been seeing, you know, tweets and a bunch of people and one person tweeting over and over again. I'm like, they're, that's something smart that they're saying. And I will often then follow up and say, what do you do and learn? And then, and then continue conversations in, in spaces that allow for better, better conversation. But it's, it's also about finding ideas and resources, right? One of the things that's interesting is knowing as, as you're aware, the top location that teachers go to to find resources is Pinterest. Uh, which says a number of things. One is it says we probably need to be building better tools for them to find resources. You know, hey, that's a great way to 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 use social media to improve my practice is just being able to find better stuff. And so that's an interesting question. Like, do we need to build better tools? If they're already at Pinterest, 
why not build on top of Pinterest? Well, if a company like Pinterest was interested in doing that, then I would say you don't need to. Unfortunately, what happens is when there's a tool that's really not meant for you know supporting teachers, you can duct tape and string it as much as possible. And then there's a point where it just doesn't take you as far as you need to go, right? So are the search functions built into Pinterest built to help teachers you know sort things by grade or by uh, standard that they're teaching or, uh, you know, things like that. And you know, and so, you know, you try to make it work, but w- what if there were a Pinterest that were really designed to do that? That gets really exciting. I agree with that, but I'm also like millions of people are there yeah. already. You know, is it really, is it really feasible that we will be able to draw them away to an educational tool? Yeah, I, I think there's, the, again, there's this sort of constant trade-off, which is how far can you get with what you don't have to build, right? I love, one of the things I love about teachers is they're so darn creative, right? There's like, give me this tool and I'll find a way to make it do what I need it to do. And and then part of me at the same time, it goes, no, we should, teachers shouldn't have to be doing that. They shouldn't have to be, you know, I walk into a hospital, they're not using Pinterest in some Facebook hack that they made to try to like track my medications, right? There is a tool that somebody has built to help them do that. And I feel like teachers should be of that same caliber. is the leading publisher of books focused on technology and education. We've got more than 80 titles that focus on the most critical topics in ed tech. Think digital citizenship, artificial intelligence, coding, project-based learning, and the ISTE standards. ISTE members get 25% off the cover price every day. See what's in store at isti.org books. I've been thinking a lot about Uh, media literacy versus digital citizenship. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, people would say, oh, we need uh, students to be media literate. And I would say, let's push that further. Let's let's think about digital citizenship. Lately, I've been really aware of how important it is that students be media literate, that they just think about and understand the source of information they're getting, whether they can trust it, who the voices are that are speaking to them. And, And I've almost wondered if I need to stop sort of saying, let's move past media literacy and on to digital citizenship. What's your take? All of us that have lived through this last year, I think have reset our, our maybe the expectations are reset our baseline, recalibrated to where that where the world actually is when it comes to media literacy, uh, right? I think the way the ways that we used to teach students and adults, by the way, to recognize whether something was legitimate, were things that don't work anymore. Right. Things like, is it printed in a, you know, in a newspaper? Well, now it's really easy to print anything, whether it's true or not, right? So, or, or online, right? Does it, does it look like credible source? You can go download a, a, a WordPress app that looks more like a newspaper than the New York Times or, or Washington Post or whatever, right? Um, so very quickly, those indications that we were saying, you know, as a way to tease out whether something's real or not, does it make sense? Another one that we used to, used to always say when I was teaching is like, well, can you find this fact? Uh, repeated by from more than one source. Well, back in the day, that was a great way to know. Now that's a ridiculous way. I can have 300,000 people tweet, you know, retweeting something that is completely false. So I think we need to be really spending more time, um, reteaching or maybe teaching in the first place, how you become media literate, how you, how you recognize whether the information that you're taking in is legitimate in new ways that are more aligned to the ways that we actually get media. Is that different than digital citizenship? I, I'm wondering whether I'm uh, splitting hairs between the terms. I think I, I see it as there's two parts of it, right? So on one hand, digital citizenship is about what you 
what you take in, right? What sources you, you trust for the information that you bring in. And then the other side of digital citizenship is what you do externally to make your community a better place. So yes, filter, you know, what, what am I allowing to shape my opinions? And then on the flip side, how do I use technology to, you know, improve the world around me, to engage with government, to help encourage people to make good decisions in a virtual space? You know, even things like knowing how to have an argument. Nobody can do that anymore, right? We, we sort of kind of had it down a little bit in a, in a, it's, it's almost like driving a car, right? You know how sometimes you have people that are so kind, they're like helping a little lady across the street and then they get in their car and they're like honking at people and running people off the road and somehow being in the car just makes their brain go away. And I think on, you know, when it comes to citizenship, we have the same thing, right? You have people who in a physical space talk respectfully to each other, know how to say, oh, well, that's not what I believe. What do you believe? And then they get onto, uh, you know, social media and all they can do is just lob these like crazy bombs of, of anger and, and nobody's really knows how to listen in a virtual space. That sort of brings up a theme that I've been thinking about, which is if you think about personalized learning, I think about it sort of two ways. There's algorithm centric version of personalized learning. That's all about the computer choosing the next item that hopefully perfectly matches what the child um, needs to learn next. And then there's what I think of as context aware, where the computer is aware of what the educator knows about that child. And that data is also being brought into the algorithm, but then it's also enabling offline conversations. And, and it gets back to a comment you made earlier, which is when you're talking about the dirty wars in Argentina, mm-hmm. you said that you had media that led to a conversation. So the thing that I, I keep sort of turning over in my mind is when we are engaged in personalized learning, to what degree are we separating ourselves from each other, bringing in the computer or an algorithm mm-hmm. that, you know, hopefully does it better than a human could do. And to what degree are we using that to help the teacher do what they do better? Yeah. So, so there's a lot in there. You, there's a lot packaged in that question. So I think uh, there are a lot of people for whom the definition of personalized learning is algorithm. I am not one of those people. I believe that the best way to personalize, the best way to use technology to personalize learning is allow it to support a teacher in being able to manage this very complex new world when not everybody is doing the exact same thing at the same time. One way to do it again is to say, by algorithm, we just decide this and you just all log in and here's what you get. That I would call sort of adaptive learning or adaptive software. It's not bad. It has its purpose, not personalized learning. Not in my definition. What I would say is when you have a teacher that goes in and has some tools that says, hey, we're just helping you see where everybody's at and maybe even tee up some recommendations. Here are some activities you might want to group these kids together to do. Even for the students, hey, you did this. Here are some areas where you're still might be struggling a little bit. Here are some other activities you might want to do. But it's not about taking away choice. It's not about taking away the ability to have those engagements. Look, learning at the end of the day is a social phenomenon. It's it's something that happens as we engage with other people. And so effective personalized learning, I think, is just more accurately pairing up and engaging people with each other at the time they need it and around the topics they need. Um, and so I think that's the role that, that technology can really help is facilitating those interactions, um, but not replacing the human interactions. Do you think that we're there yet? No, nowhere close. It's discouraging. We've, we've been trying for a while now. Yeah, I, I think we are. I think for a long time, we didn't even have the basic infrastructure to try to do this sort of thing. So uh, that is large, much better than it had been, right? We actually have internet connectivity. We actually have tools and devices that can help with some of this. But now there isn't much software out there that really can help support teachers in managing personalized learning the way the way I'm talking about it. The stuff that's out there is in sort of version, you know, 
1.0 at best. This is a complicated problem. You don't fix it overnight by just quickly installing some software. This is something that happens. It's a culture change. It's rethinking the role of teachers. It's rethinking the role of parents. It's rethinking the role of learning content. And then it's rethinking the tools that help manage all of that. It's not going to happen overnight. This is a long play. Is this where we should be making our investments? You're talking about culture change. You're talking about big changes in school systems. You know, people might say, hey, there's a lot of way to spend that money. And this is this is not a low cost endeavor. Is it the right place to invest? It is a fundamental right for students to have a learning experience that meets their needs. If that's the case, if we believe that as a society, if we believe that students really deserve an education that meets their needs then absolutely this is what we should be funding. And by the way, if you want to start going down the list of things way more expensive that we've been funding in education that have shown no results, like I would much rather say this, we we actually are seeing there is huge benefit when you start to adapt and tailor learning activities and goals to the individual students. We see, you know, we see an impact. And so I I would go up toe-to-toe with a whole bunch of people if they said that there were better ways to to use the money. This reminds me a little bit of the role of computer science in Mm -hmm. schools. There's a lot of interest in coding. Many schools are doing uh, Hour of Code. A lot of states are getting involved in this. And I think about my own journey. When I was in the fourth grade, I used a computer for the first time to write code. And it really changed the way I thought about myself and I thought about the world and what my potential was. So I'm pretty excited that this is starting to hit the mainstream. On the other hand, in my mind, I have this visual of an army of programmers Mm -hmm exiting our school system. That's not the vision that I really would like to have in my mind for the direction we're headed with coding. How do we hit that just right? Like what's the right way to bring coding into the classroom that has the kinds of outcomes that we would most like to see? I I think it comes down to, I, I mean, I think we missed the mark a little bit on how we have pitched the need for computer science. I think in this sort of zeal to say everybody needs some of these basic skills, we have made it sound like we just want everybody to become a programmer so they can get a job at Google. There there are some people who are going to get a job programming at Google, and that's great, right? But that's not the reason we should be doing this, right? The reason that we should be doing this is that if you look at all of the problems that we are going to have to solve as a society in the future, the solution to almost every one of those, at least in part, is going to involve code. I want to make sure students are walking out with an, with an understanding of computer science, of computational thinking, of coding, because if they don't, we've just outsourced our ability to solve problems. And, and that's what I care about. And so we need to have enough understanding of how technology works, of how computers work, of how code is created, that we can be able to create the future. Not that every one of those students is going to actually need to be a programmer. In my case, I, I'm the last person that you want actually doing dev on your app that you were creating. But the fact that I have some basic understanding of computer science means that I can have meaningful conversations with people who are building tools and apps and technology about how they can be used to improve education. That's what I care about, right? As could somebody else talk about improving opportunities for music or art or history, right? But you can't have conversations that lead to solutions anymore if you don't at least have some basic understanding of what coding is all about. How do you fit it into the school day? I mean, we ask so much of schools. It feels like this is one more thing. Can you sort of sprinkle it across the top of all the subjects? Yeah, the the hard part, of course, is that it's much better if it is actually brought into the other types of activities that are being taught, right? So if I'm, if I'm going to be in a science class, 
right? Looking at certain experiments that I'm doing, you could use code very effectively to build some tools or algorithms to help tie into this lesson that you're teaching in science. There's some great programs that look at math or actually for algebra. Algebra is very close to a lot of coding concepts, right? And so you can actually teach algebra through coding. The problem is that's harder to do. It's easier to say, well, let's just add another class. And that's where I think we start to get a little bit, you know, it just feels exhausting. And I think we have to be diligent about saying, what one, how do we do a better job of, in, you know, tying it into what we're learning, which also makes it more interesting, by the way. Going to a computer science class is way less interesting than solving a social problem in my social studies class using code, right? That's fundamentally different. So that's one thing. But the other thing that we need to do a better job of is questioning what, what are some things we can stop doing in education, right? There's there's a lot of stuff that we probably don't need to be doing anymore. And, and honestly, like as skills change in the future, we're going to have to be better at saying we're going to start adding some new things in and let some other things go. That's hard to do. It's hard for us to, to let go of stuff that we learned when we were kindergartners. You know what? It's a way different world than when I was a kindergartner. So if I'm an educator and I want to get started in this, I think that you're right, but I really don't know where to start. What do you recommend? Fortunately, now there are a lot of places that you can go there. You know, I mentioned before as, as ISTE, we host these professional learning networks. We have some that are focused on computer science. You can go and say, Hey, give me some tips and ideas for how to start teaching, uh, coding with, with these, uh, students that I have here. There are programs like code.org, which have these great boot camps that you can go do very quickly and get up to speed. There's some great books like, uh, No Fear Coding is a great way to very quickly see what are some activities you can do, even with very young kids. I was in a school recently and I saw a computer science class. With kindergartners, it was awesome. And they were, they were not using any technology, by the way. They were sitting in, in a circle and they were holding up signs that said, you know, clap on one side. And then a few students down, they had a, a sign that said slash clap, right? Backslash clap. And then when they held it up, all the kids in between the two signs had to clap, right? But, and, and then they would have different signs that they would hold up. And so they were doing the things and it was teaching how code works, how basic it was basically HTML is what they were kind of learning, right? Those are really fun activities that you can do, even if you're teaching kindergartners. And it doesn't need to take that long. the certification that transforms teaching practice. ISTE Certification for Educators is a competency-based, device-neutral certification for educators who want to use technology to catalyze learning. ISTE Certification helps pre-K to 12 educators redesign learning activities with tech to engage students in real-world learning. And because it's pedagogy-based, ISTE Certification gives you the tools you need to change classroom practice, no matter what tech you're using. Become an ISTE Certified Educator. Learn more at isti.org slash certification. One of the things that I think about is the degree to which we are always engaging the early adopters. A lot of the work that I've done in ed tech, it's been sort of pushing the envelope and you sort of have to find the willing who are ready and willing to experiment and frankly are in a context where they're not in some sort of crisis every day that's coming from the school that they're in or the administration that they have so that they can do something experimental. Mm. How do we make sure that everyone can participate in this, that there's a way, there's on-ramps for people? I'm, t I'm torn a little bit because on one hand, I want to say, yes, we, we should have all these different on-ramps of, of ways to meet people where they are, which is true. We should. And I agree with that. On the other hand, I'm struck by the fact that some of the – one of the reasons why I think innovation happens so slowly in education is because we seem like we're always trying to bring everybody along. And I think sometimes we need to really just allow the innovators to go and not hold them back in systems 
that are keeping them from really coming up with with new solutions. And so I think it's I think it's a challenge because just like we talk about personalized learning, one size doesn't fit all for educators either. So we need to be able to say, yes, here are some on-ramps to bring on, you know, maybe the the non-early adopters. And I think there are lots of ways to do that. And at the same time, don't hold back the early adopters. Don't hold back the ones that are inventing the future of this. Because if you do, then we end up moving way too slowly into coming up with the solutions that we need in order to have students that can thrive in a digital world. So how does that notion of letting the early adopters go and invent the future square with your ideas, which I know you feel very passionately about, of digital equity? You have to be able to experiment and see what works and based on what's working, then be able to pull that back to allow everybody to take advantage of the opportunities that are being created. And if you, if, if either of those are off, it gets hard to create the, the future of education, right? So, so if we're not experimenting, if we're not trying the new things, if we're not really pushing the limits of what technology can do, then we never find the sort of breakthrough moments. On the flip side, if we're not taking a moment to say, whoa, wh- what actually worked here? Is there something in here that we're seeing not just in this one case, but across the system that makes a difference and then packaging it in a way that somebody who doesn't want to be completely out there blazing the trail on their own could follow behind, right? You see some schools, they just found something out. They figured out how to make it work. They have a system in place. They know what's going on. It works great. You walk down the street and you have a school that is completely in the dark, not doing any of this, inventing it from scratch. And how awesome would it be if that part of the requirement for this uh, this school that has figured it out is saying, glad that you figured it out for yourself. How do you package that in a way that somebody can follow behind you and not have to relearn all those hard lessons that you learned? We spend way too much time in education relearning the same thing that somebody just down the street already learned. Reinventing, it's not even reinventing the wheel, it's sort of re-running over all of the problems um, that somebody's already found a solution to. It's one of the challenges of, of such a highly decentralized system. There are great things about it. It means that we have a lot of innovation, but on the, the flip side, it means that there are almost every problem that you're dealing with, somebody's already solved before. We just don't know where they are, and we don't have any idea of how we could take advantage of what they've learned. I can remember early days um, when I was first writing HTML and I had this little alt tag for images where you're supposed to like write in what the image was about. Yeah. And I thought, man, that's a pain in the butt. Why, why do they have this tag? Eventually, somebody pointed out to me that that was so a screen reader could read what that image was mm-hmm. and so that somebody who is visually impaired would know what was there. And it completely changed my point of view. And I started to understand that there's actually a lot that we need to do and that we can do. Mm-hmm in the issue of accessibility and, and other areas. What would you say are some of the equity blind spots when it comes to ed tech? How do we identify them and how do we get past them? That's a question that I think a lot more people need to be asking. It's the first time anybody's asked me that question. I think a lot more people need to be thinking, where are our blind spots when it comes to using tech to address issues of equity? So let me just say that at first. Some that come to mind. One is just equity of access, right? One of the challenges, I spent some time setting up schools in Guatemala. I've spent in places where there is a real stark contrast, even here in the U.S., between the the resource the opportunities that students have when they're in schools that have connectivity connectivity to the internet to, both for resources and to connect with others right so that's that's one yes there's been a lot of progress on that over the last couple of years and that's great but we can't let our eyes off the ball on that one so that's one another i think is uh equity in terms of using technology to address physical emotional or cognitive challenges right there're so many great tools that can help compensate or even overcome 
real tough challenges that somebody have, whether it, you know dyslexia, whether it's uh, you know physical barriers to participate in ways that that you couldn't otherwise. And so that's another area where I think we should we should be looking at. And then I think there are things like we talked about personalized learning. I actually think personalized learning is hugely tied to the question of equity. If my learning experience is tailored to the needs that I have, guess what? I'm going to be having an experience that 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 is now equitable education. Right. If I'm sitting there learning something that is way above my level or way below my level on either side, that you've just wasted my time and, and I'm not taking advantage of what I have. But, but it's, you can slice it in other ways too. English language learners, right? How is technology helping and supporting students learning, uh, in, in a language that's not their native language? There are all kinds of ways they can do that. Unfor- and I could list more, but unfortunately, I think what's happening is, when we uh, think through how to address these areas where we have longstanding gaps in education, aren't thinking enough about how technology can help address those issues. And we're not pushing enough to say, I think there are some tools here that could actually help make this experience more equitable for these English language learners or for somebody that has a physical disability or, frankly, at the system level for schools that may be in a location that don't have access to expertise, Right. I I remember when I worked for Senator Patty Murray, we had a school in Omak, Washington, that had a math teacher position posted for five years, five years, because they couldn't find a qualified math teacher. And it's not like they were turning away the line of math teachers that were coming up to apply for the job. Like There just weren't any. So what happens to those kids because of the zip code that they lived in? They don't get to learn math. That's crazy when you can connect to experts all around the, the country, all around the world. I'll never forget the day that I went into a school in New Jersey. And they were using a system that provided not real time, but daily feedback to a student on their progress. And I talked to a student there and he'd come from a really, a really tough school, really tough background. And he said that the first time he saw his own ranking, he was in the bottom of the class. He was devastated and he could not believe that he was in the bottom class because that was not who he was. But in his previous school, he said, I would just get these report cards every quarter and there would be D's and F's on them. Mm-hmm. And and I didn't know how they got there. And it struck me, access to that data for him was an equity issue. Yeah. And as a result, he immediately, within a couple of weeks, was in the top 10. That sort of, you know, there's sort of like equity writ large and then there's sort of like micro equity. I, yeah. I don't know. It's not, I'm not trying to create a term, but I was surprised that that change made such a difference for him. The ability to provide information about how you are learning is hugely powerful, hugely powerful. And, and you know, what's what's really exciting is when you say not only are we going to show you, I mean, in that case, it was ranking, which which is OK. I actually prefer to say here are some skills that you will need to know if you want to have a successful career. And here's some areas where you're struggling and again, something that you you want and then it's even better if you say, and by the way, here are some suggestions for things you could do about it. Because that's the other part is like, yeah, I got this DNF and, and now what? We already taught that part of the course. The teacher's moving on to something else. So I just now I just feel badly. I feel badly because I got an F and you think I'm dumb. I feel like I'm dumb because we're stuck in this horrible situation. What if instead the message was, hey, here's some areas you're struggling. Here's some things you can do about it. You don't you don't ever lose the chance to do something about it. And I think that's what's so powerful about using data and technology in, in powerful ways is this idea. Idea that's so pervasive in education that you keep losing these opportunities to ever, I, I failed this course. I, that's it. I'm done. I'm just done. I'm bad at math. I'm done with that. I'm never going to be able to go back and do it. And, and the fact is in life, that's just not the case. You can always go back. You can always have chances to step it up. And if you choose to do so, and if you know where to go to get those supports. So there's a lot of concern right now about 
internet addiction. I'm addicted mm. to my phone. Kids getting too much screen time. And a lot of parents are concerned and legitimately concerned mm. about this. Some of them are going to their schools yeah. and saying, hey, I'm trying to limit my child's online time. And you're not helping because mm -hmm. you're putting them on a computer at school or on a screen at school. Mm -hmm. What's your reaction to that? I can see where they're coming from. Yeah. I mean, I have four kids and we, this is something that we uh, grapple with on a regular basis is when is technology appropriate? I think the challenge is uh, we still look at the problem very much as a time-based problem. How much time are you spending in front of a screen? I actually don't think that's a very helpful way to look at it. I mean, maybe there's a at, a, at a very high level, kind of generally how much of your day is spent on a screen, perhaps. But I think it's much more useful to ask, what is it that you're doing with the technology? What do we want our kids to be doing when they're on a device? And when are there things that would be better to be done in person? And so it's less about the amount of time, but what is it that you're doing? If I want my kid to be creating something, right, creating, designing, problem solving, there are certainly things that could be done in a, in a virtual space that are much more powerful than things that can be done in, in a physical space. Um, I think we have to be much more discriminant about what the types of activities are that students are participating in. I wish it was easier than that. I wish you could say it's just 10 minutes every hour or, or something like that. It's, it's not. I think it's much more about what are you using with the technology and is it enhancing and improving your life and relationships or is it pulling you out of? Of your life and relationships. So, so that's a, you know, there are some very, very appropriate ways to use technology and support activities that I think we believe are, are really important. What makes you optimistic? What do you see that makes you think, you know, we're on the right track, the kinds of things that we're doing are going to work, and I can really see an impact to all the effort we're putting into this. To this, do you mean? Using technology effectively for learning. Hmm. Well, I think what I'm seeing that gives me huge amounts of hope and optimism is how empowering it can be for students, right? When when a student can become, when a, you know, a designer, a creator, a problem solver, when they have access to great resources, to experts, all at their fingertips, like that's just, it's amazing. It's amazing to see what it's like when they are owning their learning. And, and it's not something that's being forced on them to do, but something that they're actually choosing to do because they have information like we talked about and they have tools that they can use to learn in creative ways. So there's a lot. There's a lot. It's also when you look at uh, educators, it is just so exciting to see when you provide resources that teachers need to design new uh, learning opportunities, right? When they, when they have the power of technology and connectivity, the creativity is just unbelievable. And that gives me a lot of hope. Well, thank you for spending this time with us today. Sure. Richard. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks. Educators have lots of questions about EdTech. What's hard to find is reliable answers. Your EdTech Questions, the new podcast from ISTE, tackles critical questions at the juncture of EdTech research and classroom practice. If you're looking for reliable PD on critical EdTech topics, your EdTech questions is for you. Subscribe today.